What is it about certain people that allow them to make contact with the dead? And how do these people with special gifts assist those needing help to cross over to the other side? Can psychics and mediums actually help to solve missing persons and murder cases? Can they gain the trust of law enforcement and be contacted regularly to help solve these cases by using their gifts to assist with finding people dead or alive? My next guest says she can and says she has helped with hundreds of these cases. Her name is Melinda Williams and she calls herself a rescue medium and she's joining me tonight on this episode of Passion for the Paranormal. Well, greetings fellow tree seekers and welcome once again to Passion for the Paranormal, bringing a passion for the paranormal to you. I'm your host, Curry Stegan, and uh, it's so wonderful to be back here with you once again. And uh, here shortly, I'm going to be getting into the interview with Melinda Williams, which should be a great one. Uh, but before I do, a couple of paranormal newsworthy related items I wanted to cover. One is about a uh, former South New Jersey school that closed back in 2004. And uh, a maintenance worker there by the name of Art Walsh has reported all kinds of strange going-ons there. The school is believed to be haunted by its former founder. Uh, and the uh, name of the school is Elizabeth V. Edwards School. So Miss Williams, uh, according to the maintenance worker, uh, Mr. Walsh, he's claimed he saw her at the school and experienced many strange things going on there. Phantom noises like uh, the, the floors creaking, 1940s music playing there, doors moving on their own, and phantom smells as well, smell of cigarette and coffee. And uh, he's also claimed that... Uh, the phone located in the old principal's offices went off even when it was not connected. So, wow, what a what a strange occurrence. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, TAPS team from uh, Ghost Hunters TV show investigated the location back in 2014. They did an episode on the location and had a lot of uh, strange things happen during their investigation to include being overcome by a strong smell of chocolate. So a uh, very interesting story. You can find this on uh, Coast to Coast uh, did coverage of this uh, earlier in the month, and you can find that on the Coast to Coast AM website. Another thing that I wanted to cover was a recent survey, and uh, this survey was about whether people believe uh, that the government is hiding the truth about UFOs and uh, perhaps extraterrestrials. And uh, this poll was uh, conducted by the website The Hill in conjunction with the market research firm Harris X, which concluded that 60% of the respondents believe that the government is hiding something about, is hiding the truth about what they know about the UFO phenomena. So, uh, interesting poll there. I've seen other polls that kind of come out similarly. Uh, if you haven't been over to the website yet, please visit us there at Passion, the number four, theparanormal.com. And there you can uh, catch up with past episodes. You can sign up for the free newsletter. And uh, you can also check out some cool merchandise there. If you haven't visited us at the Facebook uh, page, please visit us at facebook.com slash passion, the number four, the paranormal. You can like and follow us there. If you know of a friend, family member, co-worker you think they'd like to tune into the show, please just simply share a link with them. And please make sure whatever podcast app you're using, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes drop. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get into this, uh, what should be a very, very interesting discussion with Melinda, uh, talking about her special talents and gifts and you know, even how she's helped out with uh, law enforcement cases and a lot of other stuff. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion with Melinda. Really hope you're going to like it. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Okay, so my guest tonight, Melinda Williams, from an early age, went on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment and now works as a professional rescue medium, guiding people from every walk of life, from helping businesses succeed to assisting earthbound spirits cross over. And along the journey, also discovered that uh, she was the enchanted witch, meaning she helps people to connect in many different ways, including through seances. Melinda also utilizes her special gifts to assist families and law enforcement on missing persons and murder cases. In addition to being a medium, Melinda also runs her own paranormal team, Enchanted Visions Paranormal, where she helps families deal with anything paranormal that may be happening to them in their home or business. Melinda, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Well, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. It's, uh, I, I always find it interesting to talk with people like you and uh, people like you that have 
special gifts and abilities. It, it always makes for an interesting conversation and discussion. Uh, and the other thing I always like to do is I always like to kind of get the background on my guests and how they got involved in doing what they're doing. I think yours started at an early age, and maybe if you could kind of take us back to how that evolved for you. Well, it's really a long story. Um, I started seeing spirits when I was between the ages of six and seven, and I was raised in Tennessee. And the reason I say raised is because um, later on in life, actually in 2010, I found my real family. And But the people that raised me in Tennessee, they um, did not believe in, you know, the spirit thing. They thought that I had a demon in me. They took me to church after church. Uh, trying to get this demon out of me. And so once I got to be a teenager, I decided that this was something that was meant for me. You know, the creator gave that to me. And so I was going to use it for the best of my ability. And so that's how, you know, it all led up to my current stuff now, which is, you know, my biggest thing is helping law enforcement on missing and murdered cases. So you know, it's really been a wild journey because basically back then, if I think back how I was not allowed to use my gifts and then I started working in law enforcement, I was a 911 dispatcher supervisor. And so it just all came around and everything pointed to that's what I was supposed to be doing. So here we are. Yeah. And it just kind of uh, all of a sudden you just kind of get this feeling rush of you like, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? Exactly. So let's go back because, um, you know, this seems to be a, a common theme among people that have gifts like you have at an early age. They experience things and maybe the parents tell them, hey, maybe this is just your, you know, an overactive imagination. Maybe you're just uh, imagining things. You, of course, know that's not true. But how did that kind of impact you early on? Did it just cause you to repress it or how did you kind of deal with that? Well, I was different and I knew that and I knew the the people that was raising me, they had really no clue. And so then when I started school, I remember in like an elementary school, one of the biggest things I remember is um, we were in class and one of our, one of the students that was in class, they were involved in a car accident and the, the female got killed. And so the next day at school, the teacher was sitting there telling us, you know, that she had gotten killed and and that, you know, it was a great loss. And I'm like, I stood up and I'm like, no, she's, she's sitting there at her desk. And so um, they called my family, if you want to call them that. And they basically was like, you know, she's really got some problems, um, you know. And so they took me home and I hate to say this, but it's the truth. Uh, they beat me to try to get me to stop doing it. So what I decided to do is keep it to myself until I got a little bit older, because I was like probably eight at that time. And so I kept it to myself. Basically, I had my imaginary friend, as most kids say, that's what they what it is. But it's really a spirit that they're seeing. And so then once I got older, my teenage years, then that's when I started doing what I wanted. And I was bigger and I could, you know, I ran away um, on one occasion due to it. Um, so it, it was just, you know, a matter of, I had to decide what was right for me. Once I got 18, then I started practicing more. Um, and then it just developed into what it is now. Now, did you have anybody else that you interacted with, say in teenage years that had these kind of abilities or anybody you could talk to or anything, or were you kind of on your own, even in those latter teenage years? In my teenage years, there was um, really no one that really understood me either in high school. I was like the outcast. Um, but there was a teacher that I had and he believed in me. And so, you know, he would talk with me um, and then we ended up getting in trouble for that because, you know, we're, we were having contact from outside of school, that kind of thing. Um, but it was just that he was he believed in me and he 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 knew because I told him, I said, your mom is around you and this is what she's telling me. And he's like, there's no way you would have known that. And so he believed in me. And so he was like a, a confidant, I guess, that I could just go and talk to him and he would listen. But other than that, no. 
Now, when you started experiencing this, Melinda, was any of this, I mean, did it scare you as a child or was it pretty normal to you? How did that kind of happen? The Well, the first spirit I seen, and I wouldn't really, what I saw was this white apparition, but it had these dark black eyes and it scared me. And, and then it was like, it kept coming to me and I couldn't understand and it wouldn't really say anything. It would just come and make these faces at me. And two days later, I got very sick and I had to be rushed to the hospital and I had a blockage in my bowel and I was lonely, like, you know, nearly seven and I nearly, well, they said I did die from it. And then they brought me back. And then from that point, I was not afraid. I was like, it was there trying to warn me that something was going to happen. So now that's interesting because I've had guests on here who've had near-death experiences. Was that what you experienced from that uh, event? Did you actually, I mean, did you clinically die and come back or what, what actually happened during that? What they told me uh, was that, you know, I was seeing this. I kept telling the people that raised me that I was seeing this. And I said, I don't know what it is. I said, because it's different than the other spirits that I've seen. I said, because it's just like um, it floats up in the air. It's got these dark eyes. And I said, I'm almost feeling like it's a warning of some kind. And then I got sick. And what they told me was that I did pass for three minutes. And then they brought me back and see this is, that's the first time when I gave birth to my son, when I was 18, uh, I passed. And so it's happened to me twice. Wow. So did you kind of, uh, some other people talk about, it was kind of like they had this experience where they were going from one room to the other. Any of that happened to you during those experiences or do you just not remember? What I remember the most is whenever I gave birth to my son. And, um, I know I was very sick and I felt like I was not going to make it. And, um, so then when I did, what I remember is there was this white tunnel and I went through it. There was an angel standing there and, um, he guided me through. And then it was like, I ascended and then there was the sky, I seen the sky. And then I went up into the clouds and then once I got through a certain layer of clouds, it was just very peaceful. It looked a lot like earth, but different. I know that sort of sounds weird, but it was more vibrant colors. Um, I seen layers. So, and when I say layers, I seen like, how, how do I explain this? Okay, so there was one layer that was very dark. And then it, as, as the layers went up, it got lighter and lighter. And so, and then I heard a voice. And it was a male voice. And I know it was the creator. And he said, it's not your time. You've got to go back. And, you know, it was so peaceful and so loving there. I didn't want to come back, but I did. And um, of course, I just had a baby. And um, but that is an experience I will never forget. Yeah, that seems to be a common thread as well with uh, a lot of people that have near-death experiences is that they, 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 they seem to not want to come back. They cross over into that side and say, there's so much peace and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of this unconditional love feeling. And, right. And so that's interesting because you do hear that a lot. Now that kind of changed your view on life after that. Um, how did that kind of impact your view on life? Yeah. It made me see that you need to live life to the fullest, even though I seen, what it was going to be like over there, it was, it made me realize that you need to be kinder. You need to be more compassionate. You need to, you know, help in any way that you can. And so that's one of the things I try to live every day to the, till the, till its fullest, you know, because you never know. Now, did you have this kind of uh, no longer fear death experience or how did that uh, come about after your experience? Yeah, you know, I think everybody has a fear of death. And um, basically, once this happened to me, I was like, really, there's not nothing to be afraid of. The only sad part in the whole thing is the people that you leave behind. Because once you're in spirit, you don't have the emotions that we have here. 
you know, you, you feel what your loved ones that are left here, you feel what they feel, but you necessarily don't have that emotion. And because we're, we're energy and, and that those, those feelings like that, you know, they're full of love and, and stuff like that, but they don't feel like the missing part or, you know, I, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really totally made me see that death isn't, it shouldn't be scary um, because there's a lot that's left to be done over on the other side. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that a lot too, that people say they come back with a renewed vigor for life, no longer fearing death. Now it's time to really live life. You and I have both in, been involved in the paranormal and paranormal investigating, but with your abilities, kind of what's your sense of, you know, a lot of people like to call them ghosts, whatever label you want to put on them, earthbound spirits, what are we dealing with, like, say, when we capture EVPs or um, we seem to be getting some sort of interaction, which I've certainly experienced myself in doing paranormal investigating. We'll just say ghosts. <laughs> Simple. But what are we dealing with with ghosts, at least from your perspective? What do you think we're dealing with? Well, basically, I, um, you know, when when I do have equipment, just so my team members can see, you know, what's going on. And, but what I see, like when ours, like our EVP, if it goes off, what I see is actually an apparition. You know, there are darker entities. Um, Very seldom do you see a demonic or anything that's very, very dark. It has happened, but mostly it is like earthbound spirits. It could be a spirit that when they passed, usually earthbounds or someone that was murdered or they passed suddenly, unexpectedly, and they're upset or angered because they felt like they shouldn't have passed. And so they do not go through the light. Other times it could be, you know, like residual stuff that's still there from someone that has passed, but they have left fragments of themselves there in the home or wherever. Um, But mostly every time that we pick up something, I'm actually seeing an apparition. And, and it's like, you know, it shows me most of the time they show me what happened. And what I've learned is that it's because they pass tragically, unexpectedly. And those are the ones that really stay earthbound. Now, this is always interesting too, in this discussion, do they have still opportunities later on to pass on on they're just not willing to do it? Or are they in a state where they just don't know how to do it? What, what's kind of your sense on that? What I have learned is, you know, the when someone passes um, at their funeral, the light is there. So they have up until their funeral, you know, during after their funeral, you know, in that time span to go through the light. If they choose not to, then the light does dissipate. Then, you know, they can go and some people laugh at me because I usually, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, if there's a a funeral home close by, I tell the spirit to go there, wait for the light for someone else that is going to be crossing over. Um, There are opportunities um, that they can take to find the light. And what have I experienced? Like I had a spirit to come to me. I knew he had been earthbound for at least a year or longer. And he's like, I've been trying to find the light. I I was afraid to go through it. I didn't know what to expect. I was trying to figure out what happened to me. And that that's one of the things. Sometimes they don't understand what's happened. Sometimes they don't realize they have passed. So what I do is if they say, you know, I've been trying to find the light, uh, I can bring forth the light. And so then I can get them, then they'll go through. The hardest is children. And that's my, one of my favorite things is because children, they're just, I don't know how to explain it. They're, they're still a child like they were when they were here. And when they start talking to you and they're telling you that they're, they're afraid and it's just, I get down to their level and I not play with them as if they are a child right here in front of me. And, and usually I can get them to go through. So it's really all according to what's happened. Now, are there times when you are working with, uh, you know, earthbound spirits, ghosts, that they're still resistant and they just 
insist on staying within this plane? I mean, do you experience that? Yes. And once that happens, there's nothing more I can do. We, I cannot force them to go through. It has to be on their own free will. And if they choose to stay earthbound, I've done everything I can. And usually what I do is then I give it a little bit more time. And then I'll try to go back to the place, try to relocate or come in contact with them and try again. But if, if they refuse, there's nothing you can do. That's interesting. Yeah. And I always wonder, like, say somebody who doesn't believe in an afterlife, uh, once they pass on, I've heard of people who didn't believe in an afterlife and had near-death experience and it completely changed their, their point of view. But do you find that people who kind of have those beliefs, maybe they're very materialistic. Do you think some of those people are the, some that get stuck here or what's, what's kind of your sense on that? Yeah, I have encountered at least three to five of those. And it was because when they were here on earth, they didn't believe in it. And then when they passed, then they seen the light and then it was like, oh my gosh, you know, and then they were afraid because up until that time, they didn't believe. And then once they passed and they seen the light, then it was like, they were, they were scared. There's like, I didn't believe now this, here we are, what am I going to do? And so then I just sit there and what I do with those is I explain to them, no matter if you didn't believe when you was alive, it doesn't matter. You are welcome into heaven there. You know, there's, there's just different things you're going to have to transition through. And I said, you'll have to go through your life review. And I said, and then, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And I finally, most, well, all of all five of those, I got them to go through. So it's just a matter that sometimes it usually takes me two to four hours with certain spirits. And so I'm there until I can either get them to, or they just write out refuse. Now, yeah, that's interesting too, Melinda. Uh, I've had other guests on the show, um, you know, psychics, mediums, um, this whole idea of reincarnation and life reviews. So I think some people also fear judgment as they're going to pass on. And uh, is that something we really need to fear um, as we're passing on? I mean, is that a real concern um, or legitimate fear for people to have moving on? What I tell people is this, what I seen in heaven was you do go through the transition of looking at your life review. And that's where everything was reviewed that what you have done good, what you have not done that's so good or et cetera. And, and this is what I saw. So, and what I saw, I, I do not believe in a hell. I do not, I did not see nothing of that nature. What I seen was layers. So say on the bottom layer, it was like darker. And I was like standing there looking down and I could see a darker level. And what I seen was people that, you know, murdered, raped, then those, you know, the worst things you can do. They were on that bottom level. Then, you know, it's according to where you, what you've done in life and if you've harmed others, you know, and, but you can work your way up out of that bottom layer but it takes a long time. Then you can reincarnate. You can come back to earth and try to get it right. Um, you know, it's just all, we all have different lessons to learn. And sometimes we look at things and say, you know, why did this happen to us? Well, it was a, a lesson that you needed. So you would know what that felt like. So, and I always give the example, I was married for 25 years. Um, my husband suddenly passed and it was devastation. I was completely broken and um, I couldn't see him. And that made me angered. I'm like, I can see everything else, but I can't see him. What I learned was about, it took me about three months, but I learned that it was because I was in so much grief that it was stopping me from seeing him. Once I realized that and let that go, I could see. Him. So, you know, it's not really to be, so-called to be afraid or be fearful of the things you've done is just to know that you've got to experience um say you hurt somebody you made someone cry you're gonna feel that pain that you caused someone else but it's just things that you have to go through deal 
with. And then, you know, you can most, I can't, well, I can't say most, I guess, but, you know, you just have to go through the layers. You have to go through the layers and then you can work yourself up from that layer. So that's what I thought. Yeah. And so this is life review is also about a learning experience, right? I mean, this is not necessarily a judgment as it is. Right. You have to learn from these experiences and um, take away from it a lesson, perhaps. Exactly. Interesting. I want to get back to uh, the whole this whole concept of helping people to cross over. Um, What's kind of the process you go through? If you first of all, is it just a sense? Do you see the spirit and then from there how do you kind of go through that process where you help someone to cross over okay i'm going to use the best one that i have because when 9 11 happened i was living here in arizona and um i was a 911 dispatcher and i had worked the night before and got home was went to bed and my my daughter at that time, that was two, she came running to me and telling me, mama, get up. And I, so I, I, I set up and I'm still tired because I just went to bed like an hour prior to working all night. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the TV and I'm just in total disbelief. Then about an hour later, I'm like, well, I'm going to go lay back down because I have to go back into work tonight. And I went in and I laid down. And then that's when chaos ensued. There were spirits coming from me from the towers. There were spirits coming from to me from the Pentagon. There were spirits coming from every everything that was going on that day. And I was just very overwhelmed. Um, there was, and, and you know, one of the hardest things, it was like what I saw is their actual, what they look like. So say like when the plane crashed uh, in Pennsylvania, that, you know, it just, there was nothing left. So what I seen was like, bits and pieces of their body some places on their face was missing and it was it was very horrible yeah that would be awful I can imagine it was very awful and and then but the hardest part of that whole situation was the hijackers also came and it was just like oh my gosh because some of the deceased victims they were like, why are you going to help them? And I'm like, it's not for me to judge. I said, I am not the judger. I'm the one that helps everyone to cross over if I can get them to. And, you know, they were speaking in their native language. And this was the weird part was I was like, what am I going to do? I don't really, I don't understand them. And then all of a sudden I was trying to tell them I didn't understand then I started talking their language and it was like, Oh my God. And my husband, the one that passed away, he was there at the time and he was standing there and he was just in total amazement, but I got the hijackers to cross over. And then of course, some of the victims was very upset with me. And I'm like, I'm not condoning what they done, but I am not the one that is going to be judging them. My job from the creator is to help people to cross over. So, and that process went on for days from all of the places that 9-11 happened. And the officers that came through from, from the towers, you know, all of this was very overwhelming. And it went on for days, me helping them. And so anytime there's something like a massive casualty most of them find their way to me. I don't know why. I know I was very drawn to, to helping these spirits. And, you know, it was just, I was, I was angered even the, uh, to the hijackers. I told them what they done was wrong. You know, um, I did not condone anything they done, but I'm not their judge. So they just needed to go through the light and they would deal with it with the creator. And, and that's all I really had to say, but they needed to go through and they did. So, you know, things like that is the, one of the hardest things that I've ever had to deal with. Any, 
I, I have to ask, since uh, we just talked about it, any of the hijackers express any remorse about what had just occurred? Yes, they did. And see, the, the victims couldn't understand them. And, and I'm like, they're saying they're sorry. They're saying, you know, it happened and, and you know, it's done and, and there's nothing can be done from this point. So you've got to just go through the light. But they did show remorse. And it, it's not like a remorse of, you know, I, I'm, I shouldn't have done this. It was more of a remorse of, it was like they were in shock. It was almost like I felt they really didn't think they would die. That was the feeling that I got. And, you know, and, but you could see on their faces and especially because, you know, they, when something like that happens, everyone involved can see each other in, in the, in death. And so it was very hard once they started seeing, especially, you know, the, some of the planes had children on them. And, and so that is where I seen, you know, what I would call remorse to a certain degree. Right. And it almost seems like uh, it would be impossible for them not to. I don't think right. any of us who are old enough will never forget where we were that day. I myself was in Korea, stationed in Korea on that uh, um, dreadful day. I also want to talk about, so this idea of rescue medium, what exactly does that mean um, when you say rescue medium? So basically that really goes toward earthbound spirits. And so um, like a lot of times I'm in the grocery store and there will be a spirit there. And then, you know, sometimes they'll just look at me, we'll make eye contact, but then they don't come over to me. Um, other times, then I can go back the second, third time, and then they can see that I can see them, but I never approach them. They have to approach me. And then once they do, we, you know, I start talking to them, telling them, you know, do you realize you've passed? Probably seven times out of 10, they don't. They don't realize they've passed. So what rescue mediumship is, is you, you're there to help the, the ones that doesn't realize they've passed or say they, they were murdered and they're angered over their life being cut short. Um, say it's someone that's been in an automobile accident and they died suddenly. Those are the types that usually stay earthbound. And that's the ones that I help. I sometimes what I call counsel them. And I explain to them and I sit down with them. And, and I mean, I, I really go through, tell me everything you're feeling. And then, you know, I will sit there and just talk to them until finally, hopefully, they will go ahead and go into the lot. So that's what rescue ship is means is it's just that you help the ones that have stayed here that has not went through the lot. And what about this idea, Melinda, that, um, you know, people have a tragic death um, and they are kind of replaying this tragic event or perhaps the events that led up to that have you what's what's your sense on that well there was one um in particular that I dealt with and it was a teenage girl and her and her friends had been drinking and of course they were driving they wrecked and so it was an unexpected death and she kept replaying the the thoughts of if I hadn't got into the car, if I hadn't been drinking, you know, what would have been the outcome? So uh, sometimes spirits that pass suddenly or unexpectedly, that's what they do. They will sit and think, you know, if I'd have done this, then where would I be? You know, and that keeps them held back. And so basically that's one of the ones that I have to sit there and really talk to and, you know, explain to them, well, you know, you can't change it. So now you need to go through the light and everything will be resolved for you as far as spirit. And so, you know, and I've had some that's crossed over and then within a month or two, they come for a short visit back to me and thank me for helping them to cross over because they said, now they're at peace. None of this keep process of keep thinking the same thing over and over is occurring any longer. So that that's what, you know, that in rescue mediumship, you try your best to get them to do that because then the scenarios and all of this stuff will stop. It's, it's always, you know, I think about this uh, from time to time 
Um, so we may be interacting with an earthbound, earthbound spirit. What about those who have passed on? Can they come back and visit us? I mean, can they, in the same way that, say, a ghost can interact with us, can somebody on the other side come back and interact with us? Most definitely. And I, I've seen that, you know, like I had um, a friend and she said, you know, there's something going on in my home. So I went over and she says, sometimes I feel like it's my son that passed and her son had passed when he was five. And I said, okay, I'm going to come over. We're going to, you know, sit and chat and let's just see what happens. So we were sitting there and he had a favorite ball that he played with and she still had the ball and it was sitting over on the corner of the couch. And um, all of a sudden the ball fell off and there was no one around the couch. So I look over and I said, he's here. And he looked just like he did when he passed. And basically what, you know, we sat there and we went back and forth with him. I asked him questions for his mom. And um, he was like, anytime my mom thinks of me, if if the thought of me comes in her mind, if she says my name, he says, anything that deals with me, I come instantly to her side. And she kept saying she felt his presence. And so, yes, they most definitely can come back and it can just be a mere thought of them and they're there. So most definitely. Yeah, I think the uh, the frustrating thing at times, uh, especially like somebody like me who needs the equipment to interact, I sometimes like to think that maybe I'm a small E empathic uh, and, uh, you know, I do feel it sometimes. I do feel the energy. And uh, I've had that backed up by capturing EVPs when I felt those, that kind of energy, but I don't see them. And, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing is uh, some of us seem to experience it differently and some don't really seem to experience it all. In fact, uh, you know, I never really experienced it at all, or maybe I just wasn't in tune with it before I was, uh, you know, came into the paranormal and was more open to doing this. Uh, I want to get into one of the topics I really wanted to talk about. All of this is quite fascinating, by the way. All of this is really interesting, but I really wanted to, to touch on this uh, law enforcement aspect of what you do and how you came about getting involved in that. Uh, talk about how that kind of came about. Uh, how did you first get involved in first in like missing persons and murder cases and working with law enforcement? Okay, so uh, one of them happened when I was probably early 20s, and uh, there was a school bus that came up missing, and, you know, no, nobody knew. They said it, it never arrived. You know, we've been up and down the area, we, and I'm like, okay, I said, I'll, I'll come to the area that the bus was supposed to have took. So they, the law officer, you know, law enforcement took me to that area. I got out, and I walked the road, and I stopped, and I said, here there's something about this area something happened here and and so you know the school bus had children on it so you know it was very very families were very desperate so I'm like there's something that happened to the bus here but then the bus driver got out he'd done something and they got back on their way so then we got back into the patrol car we went on down and we come to this area that was real curvy And I said, stop. I said, there's something about the brakes. And I said, the the bus went off the the side of the road here in this area somewhere. So, of course, we all get out and we're all looking. You know, they called other um, law officers there to start looking up and help us look. Within 30 minutes, we found the bus. It had went over this big ravine. And I'm like, the officer looked at me. He says, is anybody alive? And I said, no. And he says, are you sure? I said, the children are standing here. I said, the bus driver's standing here. I said, there's no one, there's there's no survival. So they had to get rope and everything to climb down in there. You know, it took them days to get all of the bodies out. Well, then, you know, I done a sacred ceremony there to try to give closure. And then it was like, I don't know, six months later, we had a 911 call. And this lady was hysterical and she says, my car broke down and she said, she told us where she was. And she says, and I 
got out, she says, because I felt like there was, my car was being pushed. And I knew that was the area that this happened in. So me and one of the officers, I asked the officer, can I ride out there with you? I've got to see what I think is happening. So we get out there. And so we helped her to push her car off of the side because it was in the curb. And on the back of her car was little handprints. So I'm standing there and I'm like, the children that passed here, they come because they did cross over. But when a vehicle or something gets stalled or something in that curve, they came and they would push the car, try to push the car out of the way for safety. So that's when I first really got into that. Then it went to, I had a family to reach out. She was saying law enforcement's not really helping her. Um, you know, she goes, my sister's missing. Uh, we spoke to her two days ago. We then we call and she doesn't answer. We went to her apartment. Um, the door was open. There was, you know, some of her jewelry she always wore was laying in the floor. And I'm like, don't tell me nothing else. I said, can you bring something of hers to me? So they did. And it was a ring. I put the ring on and instantly I was like, someone, someone called her and I said, she was in a hurry to get out of her apartment. That's why the door wasn't locked. I said, as she was leaving, she was trying to put the ring, her, her jewelry on. She dropped some of it, but she kept on. She just was in a hurry to get out. And I said, and then I said, there's something about on the interstate. I said, she's like pulled over. I said, I see two men approach the car and I said, and they've got her. And she's like, oh my God. I said, now, is she supposed to be taking insulin or some kind of medication? She said, yes. And I said, well, I said, she's not doing very well. And I said, all I can tell you is there is like an old, older trailer mobile home. I said, it's like a white cream colored. I said, I see a sign that says, Pine view or something view. And I said, and it's it's down in the city. And but I actually said where, but for protection reasons, I will just say that. And so her and her mom took off. They went down to that area where I said, and I did ask her, I said, they pinged her phone. I said, but it, it come up. And I said, but they found the phone because it was thrown out. She said, on side of the interstate. And I said, okay. I said, when you find this trailer, I said, it's, it's like really run down. And I said, behind it is like an old barn or wooden shack or something to that nature. I said, she's inside there. So they went down to the area that, you know, they, that I picked up, she was in. Cause I looked at a map and I said, it's this, this area here. So they went down and they drove and drove. Finally, they come across the road that said Pine View. It was a dead end. They went down it and she's calling me and she says, Melinda, she says, there is a white older mobile home. It's at the end of the road. She says, there is like a, she says, I don't know if it's a barn or I said, exactly. I said, I, I couldn't tell either. I said, please be careful. Call law enforcement. Well, her mom was very adamant and she said, that's my daughter and I'm going to get her. And I'm like, just be careful. I said, please call law enforcement. I said, but she's very, very weak. And I said, she is needing medicine. So they get there, they get, they find her. She was alive. They called the ambulance, got everybody there. And these, what had happened was she had broke down on the interstate and these two guys approached her broke down car. and. They told her, you know, they would help her. They hooked her car up to their truck and took her there. But then other things went on. So it was very, very sad situation, but we did find her alive. Now, Melinda, you worked as a uh, 911 dispatcher. That must have been difficult at times. Now, did you see things or visions while you were doing that? And how did that impact you? It was a very big challenge because I only let certain people I worked with that I trusted know. And that was very few. I'm going to say one or two officers that knew. And um, so basically there was one call and 
it was a truck driver and he says, you know, I'm on this road. He says, we've had a massive accident. He says, my, I'm, I'm stuck inside of my vehicle and it, you know, it was an 18 wheeler. He said, it's on fire. I can't get out. So, you know, I have everybody going and I kept seeing he wasn't going to make it. And what I would see is actually his, his spirit coming to me all burnt. And so I'm on the phone with him, trying to calm him down while I had ambulance and, you know, law enforcement en route, fire department. So one of the first ones on the scene was the uh, EMS. And but one of them was a firefighter. So he's up there and he's trying to get him free. And then he goes, I can't get him free. And then all of a sudden I felt like it was going to explode. And I was screaming at, you know, at the rescue worker. I was like, get away. It's going to go. You've got to move. And he's like, but I, I said, you've got to move now. I said, or it is, it's going to blow. And I said, and you're going to, you know, lose your life in this too. And so he stepped away and within, I'm going to say seconds, it exploded. Wow. And that was one of the hardest, um, you know, another one was, got a 911 call that there was an accident on the interstate and the people were passing by and they were saying, there's a small child laying in the middle of the road. And I'm like, well, did you stop? And they're like, no. I'm like, why not? I said, it's a child. Why? And so I had this one lady to turn around and, and they had, her father was driving and they wrecked and the child was ejected. And I'm like, I said to the lady, I said, please turn her over. I said, let's, let's see, you know, if we could start CPR and she turned her over and she starts screaming hysterically. But then I seen what she saw and the little girl's face, there was no face. There was no nose. There was nothing. And I'm like, we still got to try. And she says, I can't tell where her mouth is from anything else. By that time, EMS got on the scene. And so they started working on her and then they told me to launch the helicopter, which I did within five minutes. He said to cancel the helicopter, the child had passed. So I'm sitting in dispatch and this little girl comes to me. She was four years old and she says, I know I died. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, she says, but my puppy, she says, my puppy's not dead. It's still out there. It's running. It's scared. Find my puppy. Well, then as I was standing, sitting there talking to the little girl, we get a regular phone call and one of the other dispatchers took it and it was the mother of the little girl. And she says, they called and told me my daughter was killed in this accident. She says, well, she had a pup that was with her. Where is the pup? And so that little girl, she says, see, my mama is telling you guys, I had a puppy and it needs to be rescued. So I sent the officers back out there to find the pup. And sure enough, they found it. We brought it back to the sheriff's office and the mom came and got it. And it was just, and then the little girl, she told me to tell her mom, she loved her. And, you know, it was very emotional. But then once the mom got her puppy, she went through the lot. So yes, sometimes it was very hard being a dispatcher. Yes. I can imagine. The so I imagine there's probably two extremes here. Now you've helped solve cases, right? Mm -hmm. You've helped him bring resolution. You talked about the, the girl that was found. So on one end, you're feeling, you know, probably happiness because you've helped to resolve a case. You've helped someone. On the other hand, there must be cases where you've not been able to, just like the one you just talked about. I can imagine that's a kind of just an emotional roller coaster to have those different situations where one you can assist and you can help where others it's kind of too, too late. Yes. It sometimes it really, sometimes I get very sad, you know, especially when something is to me that happened, that was very sad. And, you know, saying that I think of one where, this girl came to me and she said, I was just murdered. And she says, and she says, I have a baby. She says, it's, it's three months old. She says, the father killed me. And she says, I don't want my baby going to him. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God. And so, you know, she was very adamant. And so one of the hardest things I have to do is pick up the phone 
and call law enforcement and say, this spirit's here. She's saying she's just been murdered. This is her address. You know, get someone there. There's a small child involved. Uh, the husband, boyfriend done it. Um, and so that's one of the hard things I have to deal with too. And, but in this case, he had already left with the baby. And um, so then they went to there, they found her and they ruled it as a suicide. And then that's when she became real angered. And she's like, no, it's not. I said, I understand. I said, but, you know, law enforcement has to find evidence. And, and, you know, she was just so angered. And she says, okay, I'll give them evidence. She says, tell them to look underneath the sink in the bathroom. She says, I had a camera. It will show him doing this to me. I called law, law enforcement. I said, she's saying there's a camera with, with the proof that he done this. And so they go back, they find it, and they get him. Wow. So, you know, it's just one extreme to the other. You never know what you're going to get. Now, Melinda, is this kind of like when you see these things, because um, you, you had talked about you've kind of seen this stuff playing. Is it kind of like a movie playing in your head? Talk about like when you see these visions, how does that kind of happen? sometimes, sometimes it's just the spirit standing in front of me, telling me all of this stuff. So, you know, I always have a pen. I'm always jotting down everything. Um, I'm starting to use a recorder so I can just speak it into it. Um, but sometimes I do get images like, like with her, she showed me what he done as, and it was like an image went right straight across my eyes and it showed me what he done and how he done it. And so it, it's, it's really according to the situation. It's according to where I'm at. If I'm at home, you know, it could be either way or it can be all. Um, but if I'm out and something happens, then it's like a very brief thing. And then I know I'm like, oh boy, there's going to be something come up. I better be ready. And so it, it really just varies to the circumstances. Now, have you ever, you know, you, you probably obviously have some law enforcement people that know you and mm -hmm. will, you know, reach out to you. Have you experienced reaching out to other law enforcement where they don't believe you? They, you know, you're telling them this and uh, maybe they're just not very accepting of this idea that you're seeing this play out. Yes, that happens, you know, ever so often, uh, you know, there's usually a lot of skeptical people and I get that I do. And, but one case that stood out in particular, there was, um, a drowning and they couldn't find the little girl. And so the little girl was, came to me and she just stands there. She doesn't speak and she's just all wet and she holds her hands out like this. In one hand, I see an orange. On the other hand, I see like a, a Native American statue. And I'm like, what does this mean? And then I looked at her and I said, I don't understand. I said, you're going to have to tell me or give me some indication of who do you want me to contact? What do you want me to do? And she finally started talking and she said she drowned. So, and she says, and they're looking for my body. And she said, they've been looking for weeks. And she says, and they can't find me. So. I'm like, where do you live? Well, she told me, so I contacted that sheriff's office. And I told him who I was, where I lived, and that this little girl came to me. You know, I told him, told him the whole thing. I said, now, she's saying you guys are still searching for her. And I said, and she's saying that you've been looking for two weeks. And I said, um, what she's showing me is in one hand an orange, and the other hand is a Native American statue. I said, I don't know what that means, but that's what she's showing me. So then they switch me to the office, one of the officers on the scene. So I tell him the same thing. And he goes, oh, my God. He says, there is a place called Orange Peel. There is a place called Indian Bin. And I said, she's indicating her remains is going to be like in, in a crooked like area in the river. And I said, it's but first she had been stuck in the area where the orange was. And then, but her body was washed on down to where this Native American thing is. And she goes, he goes, okay. He says, I'm going to send a team down there now. Within half, within a half a day, they found her. And I told him, I said, you know, 
when you get her, I said, you would think that her body's going to be swollen. And I said, no, I said, she is going to look normal. Like she had just fell in. And when they recovered her, he called me and he says, Melinda, he says, oh my God. He says, you're amazing. He says, she was in the exact area you told us. And when we got her out, she looked like she had just fell in and her body had been in there for nearly three weeks. Unbelievable. And Melinda, you have kind of an idea of how many of these cases you've assisted with. I mean, you probably don't have an exact number, but kind of a ballpark. I mean, are we talking hundreds or, you know, how many of um, Approximately over 500. Wow. So yeah, quite do, a few. Do you have law enforcement calling you from different states? Is there one kind of geographic area you work with? Or how does that happen? I mean, has your name been referred out and you're getting more calls? I mean, I would think you would get to a point where you would be overwhelmed by this. Um, maybe you're getting mm-hmm. calls all the time. Right. It can happen. And, you know, it's it's like I have one place and then they they give my name to someone, to another law enforcement. So it's from all over the United States. And, you know, I had one that was in Australia and, um, and they can call me at any time. I've already always got my phone on because if I get a call, I am up and I am taking it. That's just what I do. And so, yeah, I've, I've done nearly in every state. So So you're never really on vacation, are you? (laughs) No, never, never, ever. Nope. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's amazing. That is a lot of cases. Um, The the other thing I wanted to ask, and it kind of harkens back to, we talked about you working as a 911 dispatcher and then, you know, how that could be difficult if you're seeing visions and these sorts of things. Is there a way that you can turn this off or is it just ever present? There are ways to turn it off. Um, but to me, I won't do it because to me, it's something that I feel the creator gave to me and he gave it to me for a reason. I'm the vessel. I'm here to help. And this is the way I'm supposed to help. So I feel like if I turn it off and if someone needs me and I've got it turned off and I don't see the spirit or whatever, then they're sitting there lingering because I wanted to take a day off. That's just the way that I see it. So I never turn mine off. Yeah, that seems like that could also be taxing and, you know, trying. And there may be times where you just want to say, can I just relax? and, and Yes, I have off. done that. Yes. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. That's that's interesting stuff. Um, we have uh, and I, want, I know you have a Native American background. Um, I want to talk about, we have a very interesting place here in uh, northeastern Utah, only a couple of hours from where I live. And that's, a, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a place called Skinwalker Ranch. Lots of stuff going on there, all kinds of weird stuff. They brought in government researchers. Now they have the show going on, uh, The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, talk about how the, um, the Navajo and the Utes were warring over the land. And uh, I want to say it was the Navajo put the curse on the land. But, um, you know, there's this idea of this um, kind of shape-shifting being called a skinwalker. And uh, obviously that's where the ranch got the name from. What do you um, have a sense of what these are? Do you, do you, are they real? Uh, and if they are, what are we kind of dealing with with these entities? So basically, yes, I am a true believer. Uh, I have seen, but I call them a shapeshifter. And what I have learned, you know, because I have Navajo and Lakota. And, and, and what I've learned, because um, I, I only started learning back in 2010, because that's when I found my real family. Uh, but I call them shapeshifters, because if you say skinwalker, you can draw them to you. And that is something Navajo will explain to you. Most medicine people in Navajo will not speak of the shapeshifter. If they do, they will say shapeshifter instead of skinwalker, because you, when you say that word out, you draw them to you. A lot of people don't know that. Um, it's the last time I've ever seen that. 
<laughs> but and it is very true. I, I have seen them. And basically, you know, the way that I see it in the way that from what I've seen is that someone passes and usually it's someone that was in the medicine way, but they were more on the darker side. And so when they pass, they choose to remain on earth. The longer someone stays earthbound, they get darker and darker and they can in the, in the Navajo way, you can shape shift into many things. And the experience I had with one, I was out on a land, Navajo land. Someone wanted me to come out and they were suspecting a shapeshifter. So I went there. I was up all night and sure enough, one came and it was very dark and it will cause havoc. It will try to drive you crazy. You know, it'll do a lot of pecking, knocking, you know, just just a lot of weird things will start happening. Can you get rid of them? Yes, but it will take a medicine person. So a medicine man, a medicine woman that in, in, in a medium and they can join forces and there's like ceremony that you have to do. There's a lot of things, rituals you have to do to get them to cross over because even things that are dark, even demonics, can be crossed over and there's just a process you've got to go through and hopefully you can get them to go through the light. And, you know, some people would say want some of the stuff you're talking about there, if it were one of these entities, that could even be, some people could think, well, that would, that's demonic. Um, right. You know, that kind of activity, although, you know, it's not anything I've ever experienced myself, and uh, I, I pray that I never do experience that sort of thing. I think some people would uh, would think that that would be demonic type activity if that kind of thing, you know, if they're attacking you, right? You know, oppressing you, whatever you want to, whatever terminology you want to do, use associated with that. Well, Melinda, we are getting a little bit short on time. I know uh, you have an engagement coming, uh, a uh, commitment coming up here shortly. Uh, I want to talk about, I know you've written some books. Um, talk about a few of your recent books and where people can find them. Well, basically, I do write fiction and all of my books so far has been Native American based. Uh, but I do incorporate like, like my last book, it was based on the Lakota. And so I incorporate the Lakota language to a certain degree and a lot of their beliefs in, in some ceremonies that was allowed to be put in it. And then, um, so here's um, my, my latest one. And uh, this is called Death Bead. And this is ba basically based on, it's got Apache in it also because I intertwined um, some of the Lakota with Apache because one of the main characters is Lakota. One is Apache. So I entwined both into it. So this can be found on Amazon and this is my latest one. So this is the one that I promote when I can. Um, but if you just type in my name into Amazon, all of my books will come up, now, so, but some of them are out of print. Now, how about on your website? Can uh, people access your books as well on your website and, and, or if they want to do a session with you, if they want to, um, you know, do a one-on-one -on -one session with you first, what can they expect and how do they do go about doing that? So basically what I usually have someone to do, they can either, you know, on Facebook, um, you just, you know, my name, Melinda Williams, and then they can, you know, talk to me through there. I, I will give out my phone number and they can contact me through there. Uh, that is the main ways. And basically what I do for a reading or a connection, you know, I do a lot of things. I do have a website, Enchanted Psychic Visions. It lists everything that I do because I do seances. I do Ouija board. There's all kinds of things I do. And um, but basically, you know, um, people usually contact me through either my website because you can contact me through my website. Uh, you can contact me by Facebook and then, uh, you know, my phone number. 
And that's, I'll give it out because, you know, that's the way most people contact me. So um, my phone number is 480-364-3977. And basically, um, once they make contact with me, then I have to schedule them because I'm usually booked out. So I have to schedule. And then that's basically the whole process of trying to do a session with me. Well, great, Melinda. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me tonight. It's it's been an amazing discussion. Uh, I've never delved into this. Um, you know, anybody with your gifts that uh, has been involved in law enforcement—that's uh, wow. It's it's mind blowing stuff. It really is. And uh, you know, um, wow, if you're able to help out with those cases, that's amazing. That truly is uh, amazing thing. So um, you know, thank you for the work you do there. And uh, once again, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you you talking with me. Well, it's been an honor. It really has. You know, I, I'm very picky on what podcast I come on. But uh, when you, you know, we started talking and you asked me and, you know, I just knew that this would be an amazing one. And so I really thank you for asking me to be on. Absolutely, Melinda. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you and all your uh, future work. Well, thank you very much. And let's, let's keep in touch. All right. Have a great night.